a rogue cop obsessed with a gangster who leaves missing people in his wake, a mob boss who deals in exploitation, a team of hoods who torture, maim, and kill with glee, two women who resist violence by withdrawing from the world, two men who find a home within each other, an unsparing portrait of the death and dysfunction that rule America's cities after midnight, produced by a second-ranked studio in the dying days of Hollywood's golden age. This week, it's Cornell Wilde's dumb ass in the basket, as we discuss Joseph H. Lewis's 1955 noir docudrama, The Big Combo. Now, do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo-Boo, hello to Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. Eddie, what are you doing? The best I can. How did you get the money? How did you get the woman? What do you think? There's always magic. What's in the basket? So, we haven't recorded for the past two weeks because I was overseas and I thought I wouldn't encounter anything podcast related. However, I find myself an hour out of Seoul in a French themed village watching a marionette puppet show. Set to fucking bombastic. I couldn't believe, I was crying with laughter because I just couldn't believe that I was in that situation watching this unfold. Then a puppet's arm came off and then they brought out a puppet that looked like Michael Jackson and made it do Billie Jean. I was like, Candace would love this. Candace would love this and here I am suffering through it. I was so mad. I was like, in utter disbelief that I could be so far away from home and yet experiencing this. There was like a whole room full of, it was called like the marionette museum and it was just filled with different marionettes and they were like all clowns. I was, I was like, what? They had a very funny idea about what the French liked because it seemed like from this village that they only liked clowns, puppets and the Mona Lisa, which is Italian. So I was... She's an immigrant, okay? She lives in Paris now. <laughs> That is so funny. Well, the French do love puppets, and they do love clowns, and they do love clown puppets, so you were getting an accurate, you know. But it's a good day to be inside because the new (laughs) Disney streaming service launched today. Yep. Disney Plus. Disney Plus. Disney Plus. Disney Plus. Enter a new player from our parent company. It's called Disney Plus. People are like, oh, fuck, I need to pay $4 a month to watch Disney Channel original movies like Luck of the Irish year round, which is just so funny to me because honestly, outside of like a select group of films from the Disney canon, all of which were made during Walt's lifetime, other Disney products you're meant to watch like split up into like five shitty 240p YouTube videos. Like who is paying to watch DCOMs <laughs> in HD? If you're not watching Halloween Town 2 on a VHS tape that is re-recorded over, I don't know, like a copy of Casablanca, which is how I watched everything as a child, then... <laughs> We had one. What did I have recorded over the man who knew too much, the Peter Laurie version? It was like, <laughs> fuck. 
I think it was, it might have been Flintstones Viva Rock Vegas. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> That's how these things are meant to be watched. I remember nearly killing my brother because he taped over three Amigos, um, the Steve Martin feature, with like some kind of Pokemon or Digimon. I was like ready to kill wow. him. Like we had, it would have been on TV and my dad had paused out the ad breaks. <laughs> so it was like... <laughs> <laughs> almost the whole movie <laughs> oh, I was so mad <laughs> I think Three Amigos was one of the first DVDs I bought with my own money which is such a weird thing for a child to acquire <laughs> I mean I remember as soon as I found it on DVD I was like bam get that got to, got to. it's such a good movie We'll talk about it later. They had um, Martin Short was on TCM last night talking to Dennis Miller about various bits and pieces from his career. And he was talking about when he went on Johnny Carson and it was some sort of story. I only like heard half of it. So I don't know why I'm talking about this and relaying this information to you. But it was something like he was doing a Betty Davis impression to Betty Davis because somebody bet him that he didn't have like the balls to do it to her face. But she didn't realize that he was doing an impression <laughs> of her. And she thought that was just like the way he talked. And so then he had to kind of keep it up. I don't know, but it was cute. I, like, you know. Thank you. Thank you. And what a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're wonderful. That was great. <laughs> well, who haven't we covered? You're working on anything? Anybody? Uh, let's see. Um, do you I do, do me? Do I do you? Yes. Well, I mean, you aren't that easy to do. Then we'll skip it. I just wanted to know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> We love Martin Short on this podcast. We're big Martin Short advocates. We, we do. Shall we? Uh, well, first thing, well, we've got a couple of things to address. So first things first, we each have nicknames on this podcast that we have not <laughs> told you about and should probably explain because we keep referring to a particular person by this nickname. <laughs> um, and as my mother asked, is Todd Tiff's last name? That is not my <laughs> last name. I am not Tiff Todd. Tiffany Todd. <laughs> No, uh, Tiff's nickname is Todd due to a autocorrect error from our mutual friend. Was it Rita? It was Rita. And uh, that's that's um, Tiff's legal name mm-hmm. now. It's Mr. Todd to you. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we each have our own nicknames. Uh, Candace's nickname is Friggy, but I don't think we've ever said that. And uh, my nickname is Gorby, but it's not ever said. So, yep, that's all cleared up. That's one piece of business. Finished. I like how you're just going to gloss over what Gorby itself is a reference to. My Gorby is a reference to the USSR's greatest pizza salesman, Mikhail Gorbachev. <laughs> so he is a standard for selling Pizza Hut in the USSR, and he also was in charge of the country for a period of time, but that's the lesser of his achievements. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean... Me and Gorby go way back. Sometimes nothing brings people together like a nice hot pizza from Pizza Hut. Uh, the second thing I need to address before we start this episode is that Tiffany keeps cutting out all my funniest jokes uh, while covering Candace's ass. So in the last episode, Candace asked tiff to cut out some things that she said that were incorrect factually but it resulted in tiff cutting out a joke and this has been happening and i just wanted to address 
this injustice. Okay, it's happened twice, though, and both times I regretted it deeply, and it will not happen again, and everything stupid that Candace says from here on out stays, so we're all good. Anyway, I just wanted to address that. Um, don't let it happen again. I have to address the reason why Candace makes so many flops, in large part, is because Candace experiences memory lapses at, um <laughs> as part of a condition that she has. So sometimes she'll be listening back and she'll be like, what the fuck was I talking about? Why did I say that? Why didn't I say that? You know, so really it's a learning experience. You know, we're all, you're getting to see the little, uh, you know, monkey with the symbols in my brain processing things in real time as I insert things that never happened or half-remembered <laughs> facts or things that I, I have just completely fabricated. I've said this before. Everybody on this podcast has brain worms. That's no excuse. <laughs> so, like... That's true. It's not an excuse for me not knowing how big a galaxy is, but... No. <laughs> this is just the early episode reminder that if you enjoy the show or you don't, you know, rate, review tell your friends Look, we just really need some feedback because it's like screaming into the void quite literally we should say we have really appreciated the small amount of feedback we've gotten yes, um, yes. We, it, it, honestly we do love it thank you very very much if you've reached out to us yep thanks mom love the comments <laughs> on every episode they're really great i'll wait until i can put you on trial for murder who's murder lieutenant mine if necessary don't push too hard. It's my sworn duty to push too hard. Diamond, the only trouble with you is you'd like to be me. You'd like to have my organization, my influence, my fix. You can't. It's impossible. You think it's money. It's not. It's personality. You haven't got a lieutenant. You're a cop. Slow, steady, intelligent, with a bad temper and a gun under your arm. And with a big yen for a girl you can't have. First is first, and second is nobody. Uh, welcome to What's in the Basket. My name is Candace, and as always, I have with me my co-host, Tiffany Tiff Todd. Hi. And Emilio Estevez. Hello. Well, this week in the basket, I'm presenting how would we introduce the concept of the big combo as a, as a concept. Say you're going to McDonald's and you're really, really hungry. What do you want? You want a big combo. Yes. Big combo is like the supersize me of syndicalist expose films of the 1950s. The best part of supersize me was when Grimace force fed Morgan Spurlock all that hair tonic. I thought that was really good. <laughs> I personally like the bit where Morgan um, Spurlock used someone's personal hearing device to blast them in the ass about their affection for double quarter pounders and what it's doing to their insides. <laughs> Fanti, Mingo, bring that radio over here. Turn it on. Rocky Roll McDonald's McDonald's will make you fat. They serve Big Macs. They serve quarter pounders. They will put pounds on you. 
I guess we should also address the fact that this is the second entry in our noir vember series, for which we are each covering a favorite film noir. I talked about The Night of the Hunter last week, and this week it's Candace's turn. And then next week, I won't be covering one at all. I will be covering all of them and none of them. Yeah. Schrodinger's noir. That's what I'm doing. Amelia is going to be doing a, a pastiche, a noir pastiche. You'll love it. You'll love it. She's not going to say the title of the movie, though. I will. It's called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, starring I was Steve trying Martin. to keep it a surprise. You always oh. blow up my spot. Okay, well, I will blow <laughs> no. up your spot. Okay, Tiff, cut that out. Todd's not allowed to do that. The audience needs to know. The audience <laughs> needs to know. So the big combo, like all of my personal favorite noirs, all the really good noirs, is fast, lean, and cheap. So that's where we're going with this episode, because I, too, am fast, lean, and cheap, just like your favorite meal at McDonald's. Use code Cornell Wild for a dollar off the Happy Meal of your choice, but only if you don't get the apple slices because nutrition is just not something that the big combo is advocating. No one is going to eat an apple in this movie. <laughs> do we see anyone eating during this movie? I don't think we do. Well, the, there is, you know, of course, the reference to the fact that Mingo can't eat any more salami. Gotta eat something. Can't swallow any more salami. That's all we've got. He can't swallow any more <laughs> salami. I think that might be the only food that we see in this movie, though. No, no, no. We see them eating like steak or something at the club when uh when Susan is about to die and uh, Mingo's got a big old steak that he's chowing down on. Oh yeah, no, um, relatable. I feel content. like Mingo, Mingo and Fante, they also are eating something in their shared apartment at some point. <laughs> They're, um, I don't know even how you call, what, how you describe that apartment. Their, their love nest, their own private Idaho. Their own private <laughs> Okay, so um, who wants to give me a quick uh, rundown of the plot of the big combo? Because as established, plotting is not my strong suit. It opens on a boxing match that Jane Wallace, who is Susan, is running away from with two heavies, which are Fante and um, Mingo, chasing her to bring her back. Please let me go. We can't do that, Miss Lowell. Mr. Brown wants you should see the fight. It's only the third round. I'll go back. Just let me go by myself. Mr. Brown is mad already. We lost you for two minutes. I promise I won't run away. Where would I go? She's the girlfriend of Mr. Brown, who is the villain in this piece. And he's like a mobster. And he's got all these goons. And he's, you know, fixing boxing matches and... That sort of shit. And she's desperately trying to get away from him because she's dreadfully unhappy. Other stuff happens. But essentially the crux of the plot is uh, Cordell Wilde. He's Lieutenant Diamond. He's hell-bent on trying to prove the criminal doings of Mr. Brown. You're dealing with the largest pool of illegal money in the world. You're fighting a swamp with a, a teaspoon. Combination keeps no books, no records. Everything's run on word of mouth and hard cash. That's their one weakness. What? They have to have a treasurer. So? And I know his name. The name of a man who can pick up a phone and call Chicago and New Orleans and say, Hey, uh, Bill, Joe's coming down for the weekend. Advance him 50000 And he hangs up the phone and the money's advanced. Protection money. The new all-night bar opens with gambling outside city limits. A bunch of high school kids come in for a good time. They get loaded. They get irresponsible. They lose their shirts. And they get a gun. Because they're worried. They want to make up their losses. And a filling station attendant is dead with a bullet in his liver. 
I have to see four kids on trial for first-degree murder. Look at it. First-degree murder because a certain Mr. Brown picks up a phone. You can't touch Brown. He's clean. And so he's convinced that Mr. Brown has killed a woman called Alicia and is determined to uncover that fact by any means necessary. And I think that's pretty much the central plot to it. Yeah, it's not... Um, it's not a complex plot. No. It's no big sleep. I mean, the big sleep is only complicated because it doesn't make sense. You know, I didn't know this because I don't know anything, but um, Dave Carger on, on TCM said this morning that part of the reason why The Big Sleep is so convoluted is because the Lauren Bacall character, Vivian Sternwood, has a comparatively minor role in the novel, and they expanded it for Bacall, and that's part of the reason why the movie just is incomprehensible, because they're shoehorning her to everything. Yeah, it was cut and then recut, mm-hmm. and made less sense when it was recut because of the burgeoning popularity of the them as a duo so i'm gonna talk about it next week don't worry (laughs) we've talked in the past on this podcast kind of briefly alluded to the idea that big combo is a conventional noir and by that we mean it involves you know there's a there's a detective he's on a mission there's a blonde who's got mysterious motives there are some heavies there are some thugs there's a lot of betrayal kind of things operating in the shadows there's there's complicated alliances kind of undulating sense of of where people are what people are doing who knows what who's loyal to whom at any given moment but I think what is so interesting about this movie is that it is such a conventional noir and at the same time such an unconventional movie, which speaks to the immense creativity of noir and the fact that noir is such a complex genre that it could birth something that in the context of noir seems seems so routine, but within the context of studio or Hollywood as a whole seems so extraordinary. Because, you know, people have debated for eons over what makes a noir, whether it's a mood, a style, a subgenre. I like I like uh, Paul Schrader's explanation, which is the idea that it's a structure. You know, it has certain interchangeable elements that are, are modified to meet different narrative goals, to, to serve different purposes for different directors or different writers or different stars at different times, but that it basically contains kind of a standard sampling of elements. He, na- he names a couple in one of his famous essays on film noir, there, there's always rain. It rains a lot in these movies that there is this, this kind of unsettled feeling. Um, there's another essay that I think is really interesting by John Dyer, where he talks about the idea that noir is a genre in which nothing occurs at home, and there is no home for anyone involved. There is no home uh, to which people can return, and as a result, they have to live out their lives on the margins of public spaces. And what I find really interesting about Big Combo is the way in which it both reinforces some of these ideas and undermines them at the same time. There is no home in the sense of like emotional like belonging. I, I think Diamond's apartment, which really looks more like a hotel room really than an apartment, is a, a good example in the sense that you you don't think he returns to it and that but there's there's no sense of of respite i guess is is the point that's being made there which is partially a result of the extremely low budget uh, that this movie is produced with and the environment is produced with over at allied artists which is again a b movie 
quickie cheap studio. Whereas um, he specifically highlights how when you have glossy noirs, homes will be depicted, but they're not homes you would ever want to live in. They, they, they feel empty. They feel imposing. There's nothing home-like about them, whether it's Bruno's mansion in Strangers on a Train or Anne's apartment in Laura. They just, they feel uncomfortable. They don't feel domestic and they specifically don't feel like they contain anything resembling a nuclear family, which is subverting how home is depicted typically in a studio picture of this era. And I guess it's particularly opposed to the vision of American society that was propagated a lot at the time during the 50s of the nuclear family and recovery after the Second World War. It's very juxtaposed to that idealistic image of life and happiness and family. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting ideas that I've seen bandied about in, in terms of domesticity in noir, and I think this extends really well to the big combo, is the idea that the environment of noir doesn't foster close emotional connection in a normal, healthy sense. Because business is always carried out in public, whether it's like, whenever you see lovers in noir, they're meeting in odd places. They meet either in very public places, like in restaurants, or they meet in, you know, the backseat of a car that's out on a, on a deserted outpost road. You know, they're, they're in places where normal coupling is not meant to be done. You know, seedy, seedy bars, all of that. And there is no sense of like courtship or ability to form something that's emotionally nourishing. And that's what I think is also interesting about the way this movie is framed is that Susan, whenever Susan is, is depicted as, as being at home, it's like it's an intrusion, not onto her space, but an intrusion into her like psyche. Do you know what I've been doing? What's been happening? People tell me all sorts of things. I don't listen. What is particularly noir, I think, about this movie and about the particular element of heterosexuality within the big combo is that you don't really get a sense that she and Diamond are ever going to form anything resembling a successful, happy marriage. You know, there is no domesticity Mm -hmm. for them because she's broken and he's kind of a fetishist. Is there anything else, Captain? Yeah, it's a girl. Susan Lowell. You've had a tail on her for six months. Yeah. Why? She's Brown's girl. She's our most valuable lead. We know next to nothing about Brown, but a woman knows. She makes it her business to know. If I can get hold of her and make her talk. Oh, Lanad, you spent six months trying. She went to Vegas, you went to Vegas. Yeah. She flew to Cuba, you flew to Cuba. Couldn't get authorization for the expense. Paid it out of your own pocket. I had to. You wouldn't back me up. Well, I'm not in love with her, Leonard. You are. This is off the record, Leonard. It's between friends. Try to face facts. Can't bear to think of her in the arms of this hood. Forget her. You're a cop, Leonard. There's 17,000 laws on the books to be enforced. You haven't time to reform wayward girls. She's been with Brown three and a half years. It's a lot of days and nights. He's kind of 
he's got this fixation on her and she's really not picking up on it. She doesn't give a shit about Diamond really outside of his capacity as the detective in this situation. Like, I don't get much of a personal connection between them at all. Also, the suggestion that Brown is truly devoted to Susan in word and in action, but we don't we don't believe that at all. One of the things that's highlighted about this movie and if it's it's transgressive approach to human sexuality is the idea that it's quite explicit that Susan is not in love with Brown. He's not really a good provider necessarily. You know, he stows his weapons cash effectively within her closet. You know, he she's set up to take the fall if something were to happen. Um, There's not a lot of stability there, but he really nobody does it better as it were um there's a a really good line in this movie where diamond stripper girlfriend rita played by helene stanton says something like it doesn't matter what a man makes or something like that it it depends on how he makes love it's all that women care about what is there about a hoodlum that appeals to certain women hoodlums detectives woman doesn't care how a man makes his living only how he makes love of course in dealing with the big combo you have to talk about some of these extraordinary scenes and one of those extraordinary scenes of course is where it is pretty directly implied i don't want to say explicit i'm going to use a phrase i used in a previous episode explicitly implicit that susan is at the receiving end of a little bit of a a clam bake as it were i'm gonna go with that one this is where we just bleep out everything can yes exactly (laughs) So uh, Lewis was trying to explain to her like what Joseph H. Lewis, the director, was attempting to convey to her, you know, what was being detailed here on screen. And she didn't get it. And he had to be like, okay, well, he's kissing you. And then he's going lower. And she's like, my shoulder? And he's like, he's he's going low, you know, until finally. (laughs) Keep going. And Cornell apparently was just furious about this. Cornell Wilde was extremely upset about the way that, that Joseph H. Lewis was kind of explicitly, you know, um, but you had to pull off the scene effectively. Susan, what are you trying to do? Drive me bats? What do you want, Susan? Tell me. I'll give you anything you want. Tell me. Nothing. Anything at all. Nothing. 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 And that's part of what makes this movie so shocking, I guess. And I know that, you know, people want to hype up a, a big noir by by focusing on how sub- subversive or how, how taut and thrilling and sexy it is but really the first time you see the big combo you're like holy fuck because that that is a scene for the ages i think and to know where big combo exists within the life cycle of the classic noir to know that this is happening at the same time as the breakdown of the studio system the breakdown of the production code really the the last gasp of that conservative hollywood morality it's made all the more powerful because I, I can't be the only person who wonders, you know, what did people think was happening on that screen and how many people really understood it? Because the movie was advertised in a couple different ways, which, which we'll get into later. So it's like, how many people really walked in there expecting to see that? And I don't know. It's not – we always emphasize the idea of, of moviegoers of the 1950s as being kind of de-sexed and childlike which I think is just, you know, really short-sighted and kind of condescending and patronizing. But they had to have been jarring, obviously. (laughs) 
think it's fair mm-hmm. to say. It's a tricky one, too, because that's a scene that, and I don't know how much of this is, like you said, the kind of inherent, like, built-in assumption we have that people at the time wouldn't have, like, perceived it in that way. But watching it, it's like, for a second, you're kind of like kind of shocked that it's happening to the point where you're sort of trying to rationalize it like that can't be what they're implying why why they would never go there and it's like yeah that's what they're implying but it's a uh, hard to conceptualize in the context of what we know about that era joseph h lewis's movies and i'm not going to go into a whole you know mini bio of lewis because frankly i i think that this movie is, is a good example of something that is a work of many people it's not as straightforward as an, an auteurist film as I think people give it credit for. Lewis's movies oftentimes focus on transgressive sexuality. And Susan, to me, is a, is a really exciting example of a character who is depicted as being maybe a little lost and m- maybe a little manipulated. And, you know, she's been she's been dragged through the mud by Brown, you know, he's he's squandered her potential as a concert pianist because of his fixation on her. She's never known the normal love of a man, but it's not really a sympathetic portrayal. It's she's not um, crying out to be saved in the same sense that when you watch a more I don't want to say really I guess a highfalutin is a, is a good word that I'm going to use here uh, a more highfalutin noir like like Laura or any of the, the Veronica Lake noirs you feel this sense of well, she needs to be rescued you know whereas you don't really care if Susan is rescued because <laughs> not because she's a tarnished woman but because there's something about her that's fundamentally unlikable mm, she's not sympathetic um, in the same way that many other women perhaps are framed and there's also this kind of she's played with such despair you you, you sometimes think, can she even come back? Can she even recover from what the place that she's in? There are some moments, like especially even in that scene that we were talking about previously, it's like she's looking, it's close on her face and she's looking up and out of frame and it's almost like the silent Joan of Arc, like despair yeah. on her face yeah. that she's so broken that that she there's nothing there to be saved, that she's just checked out and she's gone. Yeah, and that's why I think the romance in this movie is kind of endlessly stimulating to think about because like what does Diamond want out of this? It's it's it comes back to the idea that it's truly an obsession for him. It's an unhealthy and unproductive obsession because she's never going to be a good wife or a good partner or a good mother or whatever he thinks she might be had he just gotten his hands on her a little earlier in life. But was there ever something there? You know, because really we're only told there was something there because of his long-standing affection for her and his longing for her. But it's like, has he been projecting something on her this whole time? Did she ever really have a chance of being a normal person? I mean, I I don't know. I I think the fact that, again, she's not some kind of conventional suburban girl led astray. She's very much a a noir heroine in the sense that she comes from nowhere and she's going nowhere. Is she doomed? I guess because so much of noir is the concept of somebody being doomed. You know, it's all preternatural. It's a very Calvinist genre. The idea that that's why flashbacks permeate through noir as a genre the idea that these things have already been determined that struggling against the tide is is fruitless and that's why so many deaths in noir so many partings what have you have this sense of finality to them that isn't there's no emotional tug there the same there way there would be in a conventional kind of studio melodrama anyone who meets a bad end in noir it's like "Eh, well you know that was obviously going to happen from the get-go 
no death in a noir film is ever truly surprising, at least in a well-made noir, because there's always supposed to be that sense of <laughs> foreboding, that sense of, of the eventual, the unavoidable. In the context of, like, the greater noir history, sort of, it's an interesting, I don't want to say reversal, but kind of another, the other side of the coin, like maybe a different interpretation of Laura and McPherson in Laura, where, you know, watching that, he's very much fixated on this idealized woman that he created, but it settles so much more comfortably when you're watching it, like you're you're okay with it, sort of. There's a weird warmness to it that maybe you wouldn't necessarily expect in a noir, but that's completely absent from this movie. Like there's, it just feels like a weird stalker thing where Diamond kind of has this this thing roiling under the surface, right? Where he's, you know, he's the hero, you know, he's ostensibly the good guy in this movie, but there's something a little off and a little unstable. And you just, you, you don't feel warmly towards them as a couple or necessarily even as people. It's just kind of cold and ugly and bleak. I think part of the reason why you feel comfortable with the ending of Laura is because Laura is the woman that McPherson has dreamed her to be. You know, she is yeah. understanding and lovely and intelligent and with, with good taste and with a good heart and a good soul. And Susan, I don't think is any of those things. She, but she's not outwardly malicious. But I think, I think it's probably where people maybe get a little confused because so much of the femme fatale is the idea of a woman who's just been from hell and she's going to destroy you. You know, like Anne Savage in Detour, probably the most famous example, or um, Mary Astor in, in The Maltese Falcon. You know, she is a destroying angel. And Susan isn't those things because she doesn't have that capacity. She doesn't have that emotional or mental capacity whatever it is it's not there there is no spirit there's no fire in her which is so interesting because there is such a strong consistent narrative thread throughout the movie um of brown accusing people of not having fire within them he says it to the boxer that he harasses he says it to, to brian donlevy repeatedly as his former uh mob boss mcclure he says it to diamond that they don't possess a fighting spirit they don't possess a rage that's necessary to make it forward in the world. All right, so you lost. Next time you'll win. I'll show you how. Take a look at Joe McClure here. He used to be my boss. Now I'm his. What's the difference between me and him? We breathe the same air, sleep in the same hotel. He used to own it! Now it belongs to me. We eat the same steaks, drink the same bourbon. Look, same manicure, same cufflinks. But there's only one difference. We don't get the same girls. Why? Because women know the difference. They got instinct. First is first and second is nobody. The best man won tonight, Mr. Brown. You were better than Martinez. Only you threw it away. You step in the ring and shake hands with him. You want to be his friend and you want to fight him. No, Benny, no. Mr. Brown, shut the door. Now, Benny, who runs the world? Have you any idea? Not me, Mr. Brown. That's right, not you. But a funny thing. They're not so much different from you. But they've got something. They've got it and they use it. I've got it, he hasn't. So what is it, Benny? What makes the difference? Hate. Hate is the word, Benny. Hate the man who tries to beat you. Kill him, Benny, kill him! Hate him till you see red and you'll come out winning the big money. And the girls will come tumbling after. 
And yet at the same time, the two women that he is inextricably linked with throughout this movie are people who are incapable of expressing rage because they're both emotionally stunted in different ways. Alicia, it, for her, it's it's a defense mechanism. But for Susan, I just I there's this really interesting element in this performance that feels to me like there is something that's just fundamentally not connecting on a human level and that seeking that connection is futile. And I think you can see that reflected in Rita's death and how it's not until after that that Cornell realizes that here was a woman who was willing and ready and was going to take him in and nurse him and protect him from the world whenever whenever he wanted you know he just had to say it and she was there you know he there's the line where he says she's like a pair of gloves you know he, he put her on whenever he got cold i treated her like a pair of gloves when i was cold i called her up don't blame yourself you're both crazy <laughs> It's interesting that he makes this emotional breakthrough and realizes that he's forsaken the love of maybe not, you know, a, a good woman. You know, she is supposed to be, you know, this bump and grind, you know, hoochie coochie dancer. It's very much that ambiguous morality of a, of a Lewis movie. But she's someone who loved him without reservation. And so instead, it's like he's going after Susan, who's somebody who I just don't think has that capacity to love at all. And so it's interesting, you know, that idea that in a noir, the hero is never really going to get what he wants because Mm -hmm. he can't get it because there's something in him. He wouldn't be in this movie if he were a winner. Mm. It's not it's not a story Mm -hmm. for winners. It's not a it's not a narrative that allows anyone to to achieve their aims. There's always going to be a comeuppance at the end, no matter how pure your intentions might be. The most sympathetic character in this movie is probably McClure, mm-hmm. um, because everybody else, I mean, barring Fantaine Mingo's, I'll say affection for one another, um, <laughs> because we'll go into it deeper later, everyone else feels like emotionally unavailable, mm-hmm. or their emotions are, I guess, directed in a, an unhealthy way, or it's very interesting to think that the main players in this are so deeply unsympathetic and you struggle to connect with them on an emotional level but you can connect with them on a narrative level Mm -hmm. i don't think it's a coincidence that susan is an orphan and i don't think it's a coincidence that no one in this movie has anything resembling family and part of that is probably the transience of the greatest generation and the sense of mobility nationwide as people are moving from their hometowns in kind of this unprecedented wave in a way that their their ancestors, their their parents, their grandparents, etc. never did. But there is no real like emotional core underpinning this movie, going back to the idea that there is nowhere for anyone to return to. There there's nowhere to turn. There's there's no one to rely on. And when Diamond attempts to rely on various faux paternal figures, no one ever takes him seriously. His boss is determined to get him off the damn Brown case because he thinks it's just a huge waste of time. It's a colossal waste of time. and It's a colossal waste of department funds and manpower. And part of that probably honestly comes down to the production environment, down to budget. You know, it's cheaper to have only a set number of actors in a movie and to have nobody appearing to play, you know, a, a wise and or whatever (laughs) it it saves money but i think then it does an excellent job of conveying kind of the 
oddity and the the extraordinary resonance, I guess, that the relationship between uh, Fanti and, and Mingo has. Um, there is something that is so special there, not only within the context of it being a very specific and very kind of odd depiction of a relationship within a mainstream Hollywood movie, but within the context of the film itself, there are no loving relationships and all the relationships that do exist that might be described as loving are still like they're parasocial you know what i mean specifically being diamond and susan they're one-sided attachments entirely and so you don't have that give and take that push and pull that you traditionally have between two romantic leads in a hollywood melodrama and instead that push and pull really only exists between fanti and mingo they're the only ones with any kind of warmth yeah within their relationship what distinguishes fanti and mingo from a lot of the more, you know, bro dynamics, you know, bromances that could be read, you know, in kind of a slanted way by modern viewers is that there is definitely, um, it's not in in consistently happy, positive kind of dynamic. There are little squabbles, there are spats, there are arguments, there's disagreements between the two of them. You know, they don't always approach work the same way. They don't approach life the same way. And they don't approach this kind of predicament they find themselves in as members of Brown Syndicate the same way. And so it has a much more conventional kind of boy meets girl retreat beat, you know, finding love, shying away from love kind of echoing structure of like a rom-com or a Hollywood melodrama than the relationship between Diamond and Susan, which basically exists the entire time of Susan repeatedly pushing Brown, uh, I mean, Diamond away until circumstances necessitate that she has to let him in for her own safety. And that's why the relationship between Bingo and Fanti feels so much more layered and so much more true to life than any of the heterosexual relationships in this movie. I think, oddly enough, the relationship between Brown and Susan feels more like a, a real relationship than the relationship between Diamond and Susan. It does. Even though it's an unhealthy one, it still feels like there's something there. Yeah. I guess it's hard to like see whether that was the intention like while they were filming for it to be that way or if there was just like a lack of chemistry that became apparent afterwards. A real relationship requires friction. And there is this friction between brown and susan because of that kind of sexual like moth to a flame uh dynamic that exists between them she knows he's bad for her but she's just going to keep going back you know because he's just such a quality lay whereas (laughs) it's diamond constantly kind of just like she's just like a granite slab you can't get any friction against a granite slab you know there's nothing he's just slipping sliding up and down you know he's he's just he's got his floaties on and he's got his little nose plugs in and he's just he's just beating against the wall helplessly and that's what's going on (laughs) there which of course is fascinating considering that these two actors are married in real life i was gonna say that's so strange to me it's there's totally devoid of chemistry in this movie. There's nothing there. Like, we keep referring to the relationship between Diamond and Susan. And it's like, what relationship, really? There's nothing. It's it's such a blank emptiness. It's this, like, black hole. It's a totally, like, yawning void. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're married. And, I mean, I don't know anything about Cornell Wilde's personal life. I don't know what their relationship was. Um, It leads me to believe that has to be intentional. But... Well, they ended up getting divorced. So it definitely... Yeah it's it's i think blank slate is is a really good way to describe it there is no like she's not given him anything and it's not 
I don't think it, in the way that traditionally a critic might read this because critics are misogynist is that there's some sort of failing in her performance to convey emotion. I don't think it's that. I think it's a deliberate approach to the character, yeah. maybe subconscious, but that, yeah, there's no chemistry. And that's what makes, I guess, the relationship so again, relationship, quote unquote, you know, unhealthy, one-sided attachment, whatever, so fascinating to me because there is no sense of like, you know, that allure that she's she's bad for him, but he can't help himself kind of conventional noir relationship. The idea of the femme fatale that's been, you know, steamrolled into every shitty movie sense. It's not, it's not there because she's not bad for him in the same way that Brown is bad for her. She's just not gonna, she's just nothing. She's not gonna give him what he wants. You know, she's almost like a non-factor. And of course, he never realizes that because he's an idiot. Well, even in that final shot, you know, not to jump the gun, but that iconic final shot with their silhouettes, she's like, there's so much personal space between them. She doesn't like go to him. It's just, they're in two different worlds through this whole movie, really. And it's never resolved. Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting. It, it kind of almost reminds me of. I was looking over. Um, Eddie Muller did a list of the ten gayest couples in film noir, and a lot of them are kind of obvious ones. You know, Farley Granger and John Dahl and Rowe. You know, uh, Sydney Greenstreet and Peter Laurie and Alicia Cook Jr. as that triangle in the Maltese Falcon. But some of them are really interesting ones I'd never really thought about. And one is the interesting uh, dynamic between uh, John Hodiak and Wendell Corey in the movie Desert Fury, which basically is kind of postulating the idea that if John Hodiak is going to fall in love with a woman, it's got to be Elizabeth Scott because Elizabeth Scott is, you know, she's she's a butch gal, as as Eddie Muller says in this. And also the idea that she and Wendell Corey are kind of fighting each other for John Hodiak's love and John Hodiak's soul. But it's like kind of like why? Like why is she his competition in the first place, you know? And that's probably what's so frustrating to Wendell Corey in this movie is like he's my horrible big mouth man. Leave leave him alone, you know? <laughs> I was there first. And how the dynamic between them very much reads up as like a pickup. There's even this whole exchange between them and the dialogue that's like, you can't have him, you know, you you'll never take him from me, and then blah blah and then it's like it's presented in one of these books on film noir as being like, you might think this is the the argument between, you know, the good girl and the, the bad other woman in a film noir but really you know it's it's that's liz scott and wendell corey arguing over who's gonna get john hodiak you know um (laughs) when really any argument about john hodiak would just be you have him no you have him (laughs) why are we doing this in the first place and again in another movie in any other genre this would be like okay well that's a drag because now there's no conflict but it makes conflict in noir because the sense that everybody is doomed anyway so you're just seeing you're just like oh this is bad news i know this is bad news whereas that would just be a bummer if you went to go see like a Robert Taylor melodrama romance and you're like, they don't really have any chemistry and it kind of isn't working. It would just be like, it would suck. But the thing about a Norris, you're just like watching it. And you're like, oh man, Diamond has no idea he's going to be a very unhappily married man if he even gets that far, <laughs> you know, without her snapping and opening up the gun vault that Brown has installed in her apartment and just wiping him out which is always a possibility. Susan could definitely go postal at any moment. Oh, absolutely. Which is very hot. Yeah, she's just, she could snap. I mean, we all know male critics are stupid and have very stupid opinions. And I think it's really too simplistic for them to say that that she would give a bad performance and that's the failing of why there's no emotion or feeling between them. When she does, in fact, portray a lot of emotion, it's quite raw and real emotion when it comes to her own feelings of despondence and sadness and depression because it's so palpable. 
her feelings of entrapment and like almost suffocating in her misery. Why did you come here to hurt you, Miss Lowell? You don't have to see me again or even speak to me again, but save yourself, leave him. How? All you have to do is walk out. Is that all, Mr. Diamond? You followed me long enough to know I can't. I live in a maze, Mr. Diamond. A strange, blind, and backward maze. And all the little twisting paths lead back to Mr. Brown. Like, really, her key relationship is with her own um, feelings. Yeah. And even if those feelings are emptiness, you still feel them. And I think that it's a disservice to her for critics to say that it was her performance that perhaps was lacking in emotion when you feel so much for her. But not sympathetically, you don't say, oh, I feel sorry for a character. You say, oh, I've been in a place like that before in my life and it fucking sucks. Yeah. And alternatively, some people blame it on the idea, I keep saying on the idea, they blame it on Cornell Wilde for not being able to act, which I think is not true because Cornell Wilde might not be John Gielgud, but we are wild for Cornell Wilde here on this podcast. And we are. he's a very interesting man. He's a very interesting artist. If you've ever seen any of the movies he directed, weird dude. Very weird little dude. Weird dude. Very weird dude with a very intriguing vision. And I think that part of what makes Cornell Wilde so interesting is that you're watching him and you don't really understand. He's not really a a typical leading man in any of the conventional senses. He doesn't fit into any of the molds. But at the same time, by not fitting into any of those molds, he still manages to be kind of bland and unremarkable. But Again, what might be a flaw in a standard studio picture becomes his saving grace in noir because then he is able to become kind of that disheveled everyman grasping for something on the margins of society. Even though Mm. Diamond is an authority figure, which is also kind of interesting. Richard Dyer makes a really good point in his essay on homosexuality in film noir that one of the visual hallmarks of noir is men who are kind of roughed up and unshaven and unkempt and like their clothes haven't been ironed and it's like very clear these men don't have women to take care of them you know these men aren't married and we do see cornell wilde undergoing like grooming on camera the scene where he dry shaves much to tiff's horror yeah i didn't like that he just whips it out and it's like boy that's so bad for your skin why are you doing that but he he takes care of himself in a way that very few noir heroes typically do. And in that sense, the movie is more aligned with kind of like a glossy noir that takes kind of the real movie star tack to it in the sense that, you know, we always like to, Dana Andrews is impeccably beautiful and Laura, you know, and his clothes always fit very well and blah, 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 blah. And his hair is always, you know, got that beautiful little wave set into it. Whereas if you look at like a a noir star, somebody like, you know, Sterling Hayden or whatever, the guy looks like shit all the time. Cornell very much has that wholesome put together movie star studio product element to have that kind of tab hunter like block of gelatin thing about him but it's like that's kind of what makes the big noir kind of unsettling is like this guy looks like he bathes what is he doing around all these horrible little people why is he so drawn to them why doesn't he have a normal job and he's not he's not a private eye he is a professional man you know he is he's a detective that's a real job it has benefits you know he makes was it $90.50 a week or whatever, you know, uh, Brown says at one point. 
But there's still something very unseemly about his attraction to his work. And he stresses repeatedly, it's the idea of this syndicate. It's the idea that he can't crack the combo, as it were, behind this criminal organization. One man goes overseas and vanishes. And then the next day, you know, a holding corporation pops up in somebody else's name, you know, and somebody owns the rights to a certain thing that he's trying to access. And there's always all these like layers of bureaucracy in his way in the sense that makes him like an anti-authoritarian hero, even though, again, he is an authoritarian figure, but he's being undermined by the other authority figures within the picture, most of whom are off screen, which is a really interesting dynamic. And normally we don't really see that that sense of antagonism between the protagonist of a noir and the political forces at play when he himself is one of those political forces. It's typically much more like a man on the margins, like outsider struggling against a police force or against some sort of government structure or somebody who has a marginal amount of power but doesn't quite know how to wield it you know i think a a good example being uh glenn ford and gilda he of all the people really knows what's at the the core of munson's heart and how to manipulate him but he just he never does it right he just keeps fucking up the whole movie whereas cornell has a methodical way of going about things in this movie but it's just it's really fruitless and goes back to that idea of dead ends. A dead end is is a big thematic thing in noir. It's a big thematic thing in this movie. He he makes breakthroughs. He makes connections. He starts to figure out how the puzzle lays out, where the pieces go. And then all of a sudden, somebody flips the table upside down. And it's very frustrating to him. But at the same time, because it's really an underworld picture in kind of the classic Warner Brothers gangster mode in a way that not a lot of other noirs are, we get to see the way that the puzzle is also constantly being flipped and, and jarred apart and rewritten and somebody's chucking a piece out the window or whatever and it's getting thrown in the trash and now you can't fit the goddamn thing together, you know, typical jigsaw puzzle problems, for the people who are opposed to him on the other side of the narrative. There's a constant jockeying for power within the syndicate. The men who work under Brown are always going to be subservient to his whims, and you know they're not going to make it out alive. It's very clear from the beginning of this movie that Brown's going to take out whoever he needs to, whenever he needs to. And so in that sense, there is more of that, what I like brought up earlier, that feeling of finality in the way the big combo plays out, is that... It's not so much really a triumph for Cornell as like being like, well, of course that would happen, you know, because we're privy to all these interpersonal dynamics between Brown and his henchmen, particularly McClure and McClure's death that really kind of make the ultimate, you know, win that Cornell finds, you know, winning the girl being kind of a letdown narratively. Mm, It does feel very hollow. Yeah, I think this is probably a good time to address McClure's death scene, which is one of the most famous in all of noir. You have that moment paralleling earlier, earlier in the film, Diamond is tortured by this syndicate when when they take McClure's hearing aid, and they they pump it up next to a, a radio, and then it's blasting jazz into Diamond's eardrums, this horrific kind of beating, wild, savage auditory moment. There's all this chaos. It's very much the kind of this feeling, this like startling look modernity. There's a nice break coming up a kid on drums. Real crazy. You like crazy drums, Lieutenant? Have a good time.
him struggling with kind of this intrusion of sound into the film, into a film that really doesn't contain a lot of music otherwise. And that is just like Laura, a David Raxon piece. And he very purposely used jazz as compared to any of the other kind of genres that he was affiliated with for that purpose. So Diamond is tortured. And then later on in the movie, when McClure finally has to be eliminated by Mingo and Fanti, they remove his hearing aid. And the scene in which McClure, as played by Brian Donlevy, is eliminated, plays out in total silence. He's Mr. Brown. I don't want to die. Tell him. Please tell him. I feel sorry for you, Joe. So I'm going to do you a favor. You won't hear the bullets. And the first time I saw that movie, that scene was one that was completely unlike anything else I'd ever seen. It's so effective. Yeah, I don't think silence has been used as effectively in a sound picture that way. I, I honestly, I can't think of another one. I think there's a lot of pretensions, you know, sci-fi directors, everybody tries to play with silence. But I, I think that is just, again, that idea of the cheap, simple solution to create this huge emotional impact in that scene. You really are watching, you feel genuinely appalled because there's something so disturbing about the idea that they would rob McClure of his awareness of the situation in those last moments, you know, so that he's going into it figuratively blind. Well, and like Mr. Brown frames it as like he's doing a kindness mm -hmm. by it's like, I don't want you to hear, you won't have to hear the bullets, hear the shots, like, and takes it from him. And it, it really is the final insult. First, he took his business, then he took any kind of power and put McClure as his, you know, heavy, you know, working for him when McClure had to, you know, be at his beck and call and he was constantly belittled and bullied by Mr. Brown. And it's like, as, as I said before, he's the most sympathetic character in it because you feel so bad and like you don't feel this bad for anybody else that's killed in the movie. Mm -hmm. But it's uh, this scene is so arresting and it's so abhorrent. It's really unlike anything in noir especially really not like anything in sort of any crime film that i've seen i've always found the approach to disability in this movie to be very interesting and i think it's reflective of this greater theme within the films of joseph h lewis which is a very realistic unsettling but detached depiction of marginality and in, in the ways in which people are oppressed or the ways in which difference is used against people. It takes on a myriad of forms throughout these movies. And it's not always a positive thing. In the case of McClure, it is something that to the modern viewer, and again, probably to a viewer in 1955, seeing a man who is hard of hearing robbed of his hearing device is, is very jarring for us. And it is it is very difficult to watch. But it's thematically linked to the same way that like, for example, um, John Dahl in, in Gun Crazy is a loner because of his weird sadistic obsession with guns. And today, people would probably call it like, you know, like a hyperfixation or something. The kid's a little weird, but it's very much like it distinguishes him from his peers and separates him from his peers and then 
as a result stunts his growth in a way that ultimately is going to result in bloodshed. The characters in Lewis's work who bear that stamp of difference are always having to contend not only with like the social environment around them but the idea of like a like an uncaring universe that made them that way in the first place there is an episode of the rifleman which is the 50s western tv show that lewis directed called duel of honor from 1958 which over time has come to be regarded as an allegory of homophobia and kind of this small town contempt for people who are non-conforming in that sense because the character who is persecuted is you know a little bit a feat maybe you know he's he's not fitting the standard kind of tropes of western masculinity that they desire by the way the rifleman stars uh chuck connors whom younger viewers including the host of this podcast primarily remember as the batshit crazy roadside attraction operator in the movie tourist trap from 1979 <laughs> where he uh you know telekinetically you know uh murders people and turns them into cool mannequin animatronic things just as an aside but throughout lewis's work there is i don't want to say like a concern because and this might be a controversial hot take i don't feel like sympathy coming from from his position behind the camera but just like an observation it's presented time and time again as this deliberate and hard and unsparing look at how the world breaks nonconformists. he won't permit you to look away it's kind of a little like ida lupino but like without the empathy that she possessed you know <laughs> ida lupino but like devoid of like human emotion and of course, that's probably why the French love Lewis, because they love Lewis because of that sense of uh, very, very chic detachment, I guess. I, I don't know. You know, he's very much he presents this unfolding of human nature in a way that reminds me of a lot of the great French novelists of the 19th century. You know, there is no intervention to be made because human nature is as such and it's going to play out in a certain way. And there's nothing any of us can do to stop it because people are their own worst enemy. It kind of feels like like almost like Werner Herzog. Um, yes. Just documentary film stars. Like, this is how things are. I'm not going to admonish or laud any kind of hang-ups on you about what I think or what I think is right or morally on the up and up. But this is how things are. And I'm not going to do anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. And that's beautiful in, in its own way. And I think, and I think very noir. And I think also reflective of the very end years of noir, of that natural noir cycle that emerges from the early 40s through the mid 50s of kind of this, this sense of almost like exhaustion. Look at all these terrible people who've done all these terrible things. And aren't you tired of being told that they're terrible? Maybe you're the terrible person for going to see this fucking movie in the first place. That's kind of the vibe you get from a movie like The Big Combo. You know, maybe really at the end of the day, the sap is you, mm. which is a really a great marketing tactic, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Making you feel like you're complicit in violence by just going to the movies. I think this is, again, Paul Schrader articulates that noir dies off because America is becoming more bourgeois and people no longer want to be confronted with human like social ills because economic prosperity and things you know we, we've overcome that kind of a deal you know now I got my house in the suburbs and you know I'm tired of I, I, I could I could empathize with that when I was in a bad place but now that I'm not you know I, I don't want to hear about it anymore and so much of the movie fare from the late 50s, pardon me, the mid 50s onward through the, the end of the studio system is escapism. You know, this is a grand era for musicals and, you know, westerns. And 
work that isn't exactly introspective. Not that obviously musical and Westerns can't be introspective, but they certainly weren't in the late 50s. There is no longer any sort of meditation on humanity or, or evil is just no longer, you know, that's it's not hip anymore. And I think that's I think that's a fair assessment. The big combo is definitely one of the last of its breed in the sense that it confronts wrongdoing, but without that tacked on production code, like this is not an endorsement kind of kind of thing, which even though the production code is going to fall out of favor, that is still going to be a, a marker of mainstream Hollywood filmmaking through the late 1960s. And of course, is eventually going to end up birthing this new Hollywood movement of people who are saying, but like, why do you have to have this moral tacked onto the end of something in which there's a bunch of car crashes and people die and people are killing themselves and, you know, oh, but everything's fine in the end kind of a deal, you know, that's going to be morally mm-hmm. repugnant to a new generation of filmmakers. And Lewis is ahead of his time in accepting and understanding that. That's why his movies are so endlessly interesting when you look at them as adult communications. They are made for grown-ups, starring grown-ups, about grown-up subjects, and he doesn't need to hold your hand through anything. And some earlier noir has that tendency to kind of hold your hand through a moral in order to appease the studio censors. But that's not at play here, not only because of the exact dynamic here of it, of it being a Lewis movie, of being the end of the, the studio system, but also of it being what is effectively a, a poverty row production. You know, who gives a shit? Morals don't keep the lights on in that part of Hollywood. Mm. We need strippers and teenage ghosts in bikinis and all the other shit that American International ends up putting out during the 60s. And so then you get back to the idea of like an intention, an intention, intent in this movie. Um, how much of this is created with intent? How much of this is just kind of a confluence of like weird factors? But I think that you can say that if it's not always kind of this like sociopolitical, like narrative intent, there is very much that craft at play. And although it was a very cheap, quick, rapid production, you know, that is in some sense a vanity project for Cornell Wilde, because this is the first film uh, released under his his production company, Theodora Productions, in collaboration with Allied Artists, that all of the scaled down trappings of Poverty Row at play, and this is like the closing shot, one of the most famous shots in film history of Diamond and Susan at the airport. Well, it's not filmed at an airport. It's filmed at a soundstage. And... Alton, John Alton, the cinematographer, achieved this by draping the stage in black velvet and then posting a single revolving light to kind of mimic the lighting of, of an airport. Oh, wow. And it's like... It's very effective. Did they think of that over at, over at Warner Brothers and they're making Casablanca? Nope. They were on a whole ass plane, you know? <laughs> um, but it goes back to what we discussed last week with the idea of noir as horror story and as nightmare. And it's like, you don't forget the exact contours of like what is actually going on in the environment. It's kind of just like vague suggestions of shapes. In this movie, it's like, it's good. I guess they're in an airport, kind of. Yeah, it's just that like, like I was saying when we were watching it, that kind of corrugated metal wall, which reminded me of the um, Max Headroom hacking from the 80s. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> it could easily be like a boat shed. It could be just a warehouse yeah. it could be anything yeah. i mean getting on to if that's where you in fact you're heading with this discussion if we're going to talk about john elton's um cinematography is that what he does with the limitations that they're under is quite ingenious because there are some shots in this film that are so beautifully constructed and have such a depth to them that it's astonishing for the budgetary limitations that he was under and the script 
limitations they would have been under as well, um, because it's not something that lends itself to a lot of artistic, like, as a plot. It's no. not something that would lend itself to a lot of artistic um, interpretation. But um, it's really masterfully lit. So even in the opening scene, when Mingo and Fante finally catch up with Jean Wallace, she is totally lit. It's almost virginial, the whiteness yeah. of her Whereas Fante and Mingo are only lit in profiles, so they're fully shadowed. You can only see their profiles. It really is so beautiful in the concept of the frame that it's it stops you when you see it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting to see because those scenes don't make up a lot of the visuals that you see in this movie. Um, a lot of it is quite conventionally lit and conventionally um, portrayed. But I think it's interesting to have that contrast of the city and then when they go out of the city to see Alicia, it is it's lit like um, a conventional fifties escapist movie set in the country. Like it's really bright and light, and it really contrasts heavily with that city imagery and that underbelly and the crime that is going on there. Um, really effectively communicating that this is an escape and that this is her way of getting out of all of that uh, and then it brings it all back and then it to end where it does in the, the hangar where the light plays such an important part in the conclusion of the film where she shines the light into his eyes and that causes him to be blinded it's almost like the light is used as i guess a final truth mm-hmm. you know it's not necessarily goodness and it's not necessarily justice but it is shining a light is a quite heavy heavily a metaphorical visual device used throughout the yeah film. yeah and it's used quite effectively there are, are so many great shots in this movie one of my favorite ones is when susan is in the hotel uh, the ho- hotel the hospital room after her suicide attempt and if you watch the nurse who is tending to her her face is entirely in shadow you never see her face so here's again another layer of emotional detachment this is supposed to be you know kind of a maternal caring figure but we're denied that by alden we don't have access to that and in the same sense susan doesn't have access to that because she is shut off to care she's shut off to concern and she's shut off to any sort of emotional balm from anyone else it's such a great shot it it, you know it gives you such a good sense of um susan's isolation yeah and the same thing is true of the more conventional way in which alicia's world is lit because the horrors for Alicia exist within her own mind and within her own past. And there has to be an outward manifestation of light and of balance and of happiness and contentedness in order to keep her presumably from spiraling mm. because of what she's with. I think it's interesting. Yeah, in the, it's interesting in that scene where she says, I, I'd rather be insane and alive than sane and dead. Mm-hmm. I had a friend, a girl. 24 years old. She was murdered last night. Brown thought he was killing me. He didn't even know her name. I don't hear anymore. Please, please, I'm sick. Can't you say I'm sick? You're sick, all right, Alicia. Sick with fright. Now you're in our custody. You have nothing more to fear. You know that because you're perfectly sane. I'd rather be insane and alive insane and dead it really is perfectly sums up like the whole damn movie all of this is that is a fantasy yeah and it's all a lie 
And whose fantasy? You know, whose fantasy is it? Is it Diamond's fantasy? Because that's a shitty fantasy. That's the best you can come up with. I mean, it seems like he wouldn't be able to come up with something better, though. No, so. it's not very imaginative. <laughs> no. Um, though all of his lines I did write down are extremely good. Oh, yes. Um, like all of his quips back, they have such a, um, a pointed, um, like razor sharp quality to them that it's, it's delightful to hear like the bit where he's like, I'm going to open you up and operate. And I don't think I'm going to like what I see inside <laughs> is so good. <laughs> you must have done something pretty fine to get as high as you are, Mr. Brown. I'm looking into that. I'm going to open you up and I'm going to operate. I hate to think of what I'll find. I really like the wordplay that goes on um, with his character specifically. Like, no one else talks like that in the movie, yeah. but he's just, like, a such a sharp talker. You know Alicia, don't you? Sure. Who is she? Two-year-old filly that broke her leg in the Jamaica Stakes. I lost ten grand. You're lying, Mr. Brown. When you heard Alicia, your heart went bang. You don't lie with your blood pressure. You know what this means? It means you're scared. And Mr. Brown isn't scared of a horse. Who is she? What does she mean to you? That's a crime. Book me. Book me, small change. All right, take him out, Sam. To the bullpen? No, back to the gutter. Which totally contrasts with the fact that he's not a sharp thinker. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely not. No, he's not. He's a dum-dum. He is a straight-up dum-dum. He has none of that... Um, one of the things that, again, I, I love, I'm always just going to bring up Dana. One of the things I love about Dana Andrews as a noir hero is that Dana's immense intellect is always beneath the surface. You never think he's lost, truly, because he's just too smart to end up cornered. And then when he does end up cornered, you're like, oh, he'll he'll figure a way out, thereby subverting what I've said earlier about the idea of being doomed. But then he's doomed in other senses. He's too smart for his own good, I guess is what I'm going for with, with the Dane Andrews movie. Yeah. A really good example would be uh, Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, where he's like so confident in his intellectual acumen that he doesn't realize that fucking framing himself for murder is a dumb idea. <laughs> <laughs> really one of the stupidest movies ever made. But um, Cornell really doesn't have that. You don't think of Cornell as being a smart person. And... No, he doesn't have a lot of depth. No, he doesn't. He doesn't have a lot of, like, emotional depth or intellectual depth. He's really like a dog with a bone. Yeah. He is fixated on this thing, whether it's um, Susan, whether it's trying to get Brown. He's fixated on one thing. And it's kind of interesting, like, especially in that final scene, how we are left with so many questions. One is the question between, like, the relationship, what's going to happen there, but also just... Now that all of this is done, what is Diamond going to do? He doesn't have anything else in his life. So I think it's a beautiful visual metaphor with the, all of the fog that they're looking directly into, speaking about their future because they're basically lost in the fog now. They both like they both had that thing hanging over them, both Susan and Diamond, and now that thing is gone and they have nothing. So they're just stumbling around in the fog now. And that's also what drew them together. That was what they call, you know, in, in, in romance, that was their, their push-pull factor. That was what drove mm. them together. And now that that's gone, it's like, well, what what is good? And then, and then again, that, that inherent lack of chemistry between the two of them makes that such a poignant final note. It's, it's really like anticipatory of um, that great ending shot of The Graduate. And it's just like, well, what the hell are they going to do now? It's all been building up to what? Anyway, the way, the way Cornell has just like, hmm, Bettini, spaghetti, spaghetti, but 
Bettini spaghetti joint Bettini and then it cuts to Bettini's apartment and the guy's making spaghetti it's just like come on he's eating spaghetti by himself and he's just like oh you're gonna kill me now well just let me lay down for a second I've been waiting for you a long time you look like such a nice young fellow that brown sure knows how to pick him I would never have suspected can I lie down Make it easy. Come closer. One shot ought to do it. It's pathetic. It's everyone in this movie is truly pathetic, and that's part of what makes Cornell wild. Everyone in this movie is ready to get suicided by a cop. Yes. Like they are so <laughs> exactly. ready for and that's it. That's part of what makes Diamond such a weirdly, oddly, bizarrely compelling noir hero, is that you really don't want him to take out any of these people. You don't want him to succeed. You don't want him to take out this old sad fuck eating his spaghetti. Even Richard Conti, you're like, well, you know, he did work really hard for his like, you know, his yacht and his crazy lunatic wife and all of that oh just as an aside helen walker who plays alicia this was her last film wasn't it yes it was and you know what her career was derailed because she killed somebody in a drunk driving accident and oh. they were like hmm, this is might be a little difficult that'll do it playing that in the press so yeah she's got kind of that like you know you think it'll do it you think it'll however do it. however there are stars today are we talking about maddie b yeah, we are talking about Maddie B. Well, even back then, even before Maddie B, William Holden killed somebody drunk driving. And oh, yeah. It happened obviously. to be in Italy. And it was like, well, it's Italy, so it doesn't matter. Unfortunately, Helen Walker. Well, Busby Berkeley fucking killed yeah, somebody. Busby Berkeley probably killed a million people. Busby Berkeley's. Ted Kennedy killed somebody. Noted film star Ted Kennedy. Is it Gable who's supposed to have killed someone and then Mannix covered it up or something? Am I making that up? Yo, you're right. There's a whole bunch of them. A lot. <laughs> I mean, Rex Harrison was still a huge star after, uh, you know, he really became a huge star after Carol Landis killed herself in agony over him so I, the whole thing is just is very weird anyway what was i talking about um cornell's an idiot but weakness and the essential weakness of the characters at play and then like again the Bettini's weakness why does he have to kill this sad old spaghetti man why can't he just let him live out the rest of his life in this shithole apartment but of course the guy immediately is like you know all right well if you're gonna do it just just you know whatever just everybody he encounters is just pathetic and sad and so the little victories that he accumulates along the way through this movie it's like okay i guess it's like he starts snooping around the antique store and then immediately the old antiques dealer dryer ends up dead i don't understand i'll try a little harder you don't know me. I'm very stupid. And it's like, well, thanks. Now you killed off this guy, too. You know, it's <laughs> like everything he touches turns to shit, which is very relatable. But weakness is a consistent theme throughout this movie. Weakness is always something that is a, a prelude to extermination. People who are weak meet savage ends in this movie. The point I think that Lewis is trying to make here is that everyone is weak in their own way. It's the fact that they live in this completely amoral society that allows stronger people to prey upon weaker people that allows any of this to happen. There is kind of this sense that like, well, I don't know, maybe if the public schools weren't so bad, then maybe like Mingo wouldn't be 
you know, this slap happy little trigger bottom. Maybe he'd like, I don't know, work at a gas station or something. But now he's just doing this instead. <laughs> it's like it's a wholly inadequate social structure in this movie that, first of all, allows all these people to end up in these fucked up situations, but then allows the syndicate to exist and thrive beneath the fabric of the city because nobody gives a shit but Diamond. He's the only person who cares about all the rackets that Conti as Brown is running. He's the only person. Everyone else in the department is like, give up, you know, move on, pick up needlepoint. I don't know, go get laid or something. He's the only person who cares about about justice, whatever that justice may be. And in the same sense, then he, of course, rejects the only person who truly cares about him, which, which is Rita. And one of my favorite lines in the movie. When she hurts you again, baby, don't wait six months. It's like he doesn't know a good thing when it's shaken, it's bedangled, Don't jangled, bedazzled titillinis in his face. He can't see it. There is a right bump and grind bosom right there waiting for the touching. And he's just like, you know what? I really got to pursue this weird, flat haired, blonde woman who I've been secretly stalking since she was, I don't know, an infant. How long has <laughs> this supposed to have been going on? <laughs> Oh, speaking of people who were born, weird little <laughs> facts uh, for you guys that I found out while researching. Um, Helene Stanton, who plays Rita, the stripper girlfriend, is or was because she's dead, the mother of a person recently discussed in passing on this podcast. Who do you think that is? Oh, I don't like where this is going. Oh, man. Who could that be? Um, So it would be someone born in like the 40s or 50s. Man, I don't know. You're going to have to tell me. Dana Carvey. <laughs> I like Dana that. Carvey. Dr. Drew from The Masked Singer. No fucking way. Yes. His mother is Helene Stanton, stripper girlfriend Rita. Yes. Holy shit. Who gets kamikaze to death effectively um, by Mingo and Fanti because they're really bad at, I don't know, looking at a clock. I don't know, knowing, <laughs> knowing when Diamond is home, whatever. They open the door and they machine gun her. You know, she gets exploded into little pieces. Yes, that is. That is Dr. Drew's mom. Wow. I was going to say, like, that makes Dr. Drew a nepotism baby, but I guess it doesn't really count because she was in, like, three movies. She doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, God bless him. But apparently she just, because she just recently died, because that was referenced on The Masked Singer. That's how I knew that. So, anyway, (laughs) a little bit of follow-up. Your favorite show. show, The Masked Singer. Um, Also, speaking of babies, I found out that... So Earl Holloman, who plays who plays Mingo, has a very extensive IMDb page. I'm going to leave it there. Please look it up and read the trivia. Somebody out there is a very dedicated stand with a lot of time on their hands. Okay, I'm just going <laughs> to leave it there. He was adopted by his parents off the record via like an under the table, like midwife handover for like seven bucks. What? Because this was backwoods Louisiana in the late 20s. And you pop out a baby you don't want, and the midwife just sells it to somebody. They just bought a baby. They just bought a baby for seven bucks, which to me is actually kind of a lot of money in, like, backwoods Louisiana in the late 20s. For a baby? For a baby. That's like 140 bucks, which is more than I paid for Lulu. (laughs) Apparently, he was also really sick. He had jaundice, and they thought he was going to die. And his mom, his adoptive mother, took him to the doctor. And the guy was like, you didn't buy a baby. You bought, like, a corpse, effectively, is what he said. <laughs> Jesus you Christ. Know, you bought a funeral or you, whatever you said. And so then she was like, nuh-uh. And then he lived, obviously, because he was in the big combo. But, you know, that's just a little bit of historical color for us. So whenever we talk about, like, why aren't movies the same, you know, that they were back then? It's because back then, your birth mother sold you for seven bucks and... <laughs> 
that's just how that that's just how that rolled. I mean, a very different world that we're dealing with here, and a very different uh, sense of I need to become a success, otherwise I won't have money to eat. Yeah, that's not quite like Ansel Elgort's backstory, is it? Yeah. <laughs> 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 I do like the idea of Ansel Elgort being, being sold for seven dollars out the back of a van <laughs> outside of like Baton Rouge. That is a very funny idea. I would not buy. How much would I pay for Ansel Elgort? I don't know if I'd pay seven dollars. Not when you could buy literally anything else for seven dollars. Yeah, I could buy a fairly good sandwich probably for seven bucks in Louisiana. I feel like I could probably get a pretty nice like. Oh boy, for seven bucks, <laughs> depending on where I am in the state. I don't really know what their sales tax is in Louisiana. I'm guessing it's lower than it is here out in California, which is, you know, and that's why I wouldn't buy Ansel Elgort. I'd have to tip the midwife. I don't want to do that. Yeah, exactly. How much are you going to tip the midwife? Um, for well, okay, see, it's a little bit different than tipping like a barista because it <laughs> involves more effort. Delivering a baby is harder than making a coffee, like no shade. But I think we can all agree that that's probably true. So what do you tip a midwife? Like 40% probably? I guess. If you were buying a baby who is also Ansel Elgort. Well, I have to tip less <laughs> because it's also Ansel Elgort and I don't want to buy him. So if I were buying a normal baby, I'd probably tip 40%. So um, from that little like Joan Crawford, uh, you know, uh, adoption anecdote to <laughs> Cornell as an ineffective authority figure who actually sucks ass at being like an authority figure is 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 very intriguing to me. Robert Singer has an interesting essay on Big Combo as a narrative about sexual outlaws. And he suggests that Mingo and Fanti relish their abuse of Cornell during his torture scene because it's their way of striking back at like square society and like the archetypal like 50s figure that is the dogged detective who's gone gaga for a dame. This is their way of um, giving it back a little bit, you know, and Diamond is just such a sap that you kind of get why it's so easy for them to do that. Minko in particular is very excited to beat the shit out of him. I mean, during that scene, Cornell doesn't, like, do anything. He doesn't fight. He doesn't... He goes down real easy. Like, even when they're blasting the hearing aid into his ear, he's not reacting in a way that you'd expect, like, a hard-boiled cop to react. He's just kind of, like, taking it. I guess it's trying to show that, like, they've already done so much to him, he can't feel anymore. It's like, whatever. But it just doesn't come across that way. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to imply that, that he's enjoying a little bit, but. But that's what you're doing. But that's what so. I'm doing. So it's like, he hasn't seen Rita in six months, you know, because there's that whole line about it. It's like, what has he been doing? Like, exclusively stalking Susan? Like, get a life, you know? what? So that's, you know, again, it's like, and, you know, Mingo and Fanti have a life. They have a very nice little domestic setup. They got their little love nest. They got their Lucy and Ricky twin beds. You know, they have one pair of pajamas that they split between them. (laughs) (laughs) Where Fanti's wearing the bottoms and Mingo's wearing the top. That's probably not the dynamic of the relationship but you know we're flipping the script a little bit and the subtitle i was going to suggest for this episode was going to be two bros chilling in a twin bed no feet apart because they are gay (laughs) yeah no no i'm wide awake when do you want it done i understand Mr. Brown wants an order filled tonight. Who? Diamond. 
it's one of those movies where it's like you you look at it and you're like, well, am I reading too much into this? Is this is this deliberate? To what degree is this just you know somebody superimposing you know twentieth first century things over? But there's just so many great lines like when uh, Brian Dunleavy's talking to them and he's like, I'm going to show you two how to be men. And then they throw up in the door and then they like kill Rita for no reason. Like if that's what being a man is, you know, good job, McClure. Masculinity, useless as always. So it's harder to look at it and be like, I don't really know if this is this is quite as much of a modern spin as we might think it is. And we do know that like there were situations where like this was a discuss and accepted part of the narrative and they knew they were going to do it and it was just going to be a thing. Glenn Ford told John Coble that the romantic tenor of the relationship between Johnny and Munson and Gilda was discussed at length on the set. Everybody knew it was going down. They got it. That was part of the performance. It was just there. It was a thing. I don't know if that's intentional in part because this movie is obviously not as well documented as something like Gilda and in part because like who cared prior to like yesterday about that kind of stuff. You know, that wasn't something that people were going to be putting in print. But I think it's very hard to watch the movie and not get that vibe. If anybody has, don't comment and tell me you did. For me, like anyone would be hard pressed to convince me that wasn't intentional. I think you could argue something like the salami line or whatever. You could be like, oh, you're reading into it. But with the beds, it's just so blatant to me because... This is a period when two twin beds adjacent to each other was like shorthand for like the marriage bed, right? Like it's Lucy and Ricky or like Rob and Laura Petrie or like, um, I don't know, like Nick and Nora Charles, right? It's every married couple sleeps in these two twin beds next to each other. And that's just what that means in the cultural context of this this era and the situation. And I'm just, no, like there's just no world where that's not on purpose. <laughs> I'm sour on this town, Fanny. When we get out, let's never come back, huh? What I'm worried about is getting out of this hotel. The cops will be looking for us in every closet. Yeah, I also think it's got kind of this weird element to it because Earl Holloman didn't typically play thugs. He played a lot of, you know, he might play like kind of like lecherous dudes, but he played a lot more heroes that he did thugs. And Lee Van Cleef obviously is always a thug, but never like a thug with that kind of dimension to him. That makes it a particularly rewarding viewing experience. But there's that tenderness between them that's not replicated in any of the other relationships in the movie. There is that concern, there is that care, that affection. And again, I talked earlier about that sense of, of protection and, and being taken care of that is denied to Susan repeatedly, it's denied to Alicia, it's denied to Brown, it's denied to Rita, it's denied to Diamond because he's an idiot and he doesn't understand what he wants in life. But the way in which Fanti takes care of Mingo is consistent. And it is really the emotional core of the movie. And again, I don't think it's a coincidence that the movie, the penultimate scene really in the movie is Mingo finding out that Fanti's been blown to smithereens. Fanny? <laughs> don't leave me, Fanny. He's dead. Murdered. <laughs> Why you ever tried to kill you? You haven't got much time, Mingo. Tell us who did it. Do it for Fanny. You shouldn't have done it. And he was really friend. You should. Alright, I'll tell you. But not for you. We play square with him. You shouldn't hurt Fanny. You haven't got much time, Mango. Who did it? Who killed the girl in my room? Who paid you to do it? Mr. Mr. Roth. 
that's really the only real true like emotional outburst in the movie is Holloman's reaction mm. where he starts to scream. It's the only time yeah. in the movie. It's a very placid movie emotionally. Otherwise, people play it very close to the vest. There's a lot of kind of noir classic, take a you know swig of bourbon and deal with it kind of a deal. But that's one of the only where somebody has an untrammeled emotion. And different critics have kind of highlighted their aspects of Mingo's character that because he is more emotionally free than other characters comes across as almost kind of emasculated. You know, he's very much um, the, the subordinate partner in his relationship with Fanti. He shot in the wrist, which is, you know, limp wrist kind of a thing. You know, he he cries. He expresses all these this, this range of emotion that is kind of puzzling. And so then when he kind of gets what's coming to him at the end it's it's a little bit hurtful and 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 uncomfortable for the viewer and the same way that other people meeting their ends isn't because there is like an emotional resonance that you have with him that you don't really have with a lot of other characters in the movie uh i get i've said this time and time again but it's like eh, who cares whether a diamond cracks the combo you know all that kind of stuff is just like mm. ah, whatever yeah you're not really invested in like him cracking the case not like you would be in something else, like where it, like even in Laura, you want to know who did it, yeah, and what happened. Whereas in this, you you don't care. You just like you're just along for the ride, and at the end, you're left feeling kind of hollow. But I think that that's an effective way to tell a story because, like in life, not all things do are satisfactory or do have good conclusions or have sympathetic heroes and villains and. You know, it's a reflection of life that is so um, rarely seen. What grabs me when when I rewatch the movie is a noir and a detective story obviously are, are interrelated and overlapping genres, but they're still distinct concepts because you can have a detective story that's not a noir and you can have a noir that's not a detective story. There is no whodunit in this movie. It's more like why done it or who did it get done to? You know, his, his search for Alicia is a clue to Brown and a clue to Susan more than is like any actual concern for like what happened to Alicia. He yeah. doesn't really care at the end of the day. It's just he is obsessed with the case because of his obsession with Susan, his obsession with Brown. It's not really out of a concern for Alicia's well-being, which, again, is very different from we keep bringing up Dana in Laura. But the difference there is that McPherson very much you want to see him solve the case and you understand why he's so driven to it because he is in love with this dead woman. It's compelling in a way that Diamond's search for Alicia isn't because it's like he's not emotionally invested in it. And that's why when he sees her and he realizes she's kind of cracked, basically, it's so much sadder than that. Because it's like, it doesn't answer any of his questions. And it doesn't answer any of your questions or the viewer's questions. You really, she needs, she should just be left alone. He's intruded upon that, you know. This isn't the mystery that he was meant to solve in the first place. And what is the mystery at the core of this movie? It kind of has almost, there is this unconventional kind of narrative structure at play here. Where it's like, what really is he searching for? And the answer is he's searching for an a reason as to why Susan is still so drawn to Brown and not to him. What is it that Brown possesses? And when it gets back to it, it's not so much what Brown possesses as what Susan possesses herself or what she doesn't possess, whether it's initiative or, or courage or like a soul. <laughs> what is it about her that makes her kind of this base creature who keeps going back to a man who mistreats her? And the answer, again, is that he lays pipe so good. I don't know how to stop you. 
look i am just reporting the historical <laughs> fact of what happened Damn. on the lot I just wanted to touch quickly upon the marketing strategy for the big combo, which is interesting to me because the movie straddles the world of like the legit studio melodrama and the cheap exploitation thriller, which were in an uneasy yoking in 1955. Um, It's really the dying days of noir and two sets of newspaper advertisements were prepared, one emphasizing the crime aspect of the story and one emphasizing the love triangle to suit different audiences. And in the marketing package, there was also a mock-up of a tabloid page purporting to tell the true story of a girl's involvement with a gangster. And, of course, the girl is Susan. And then there's this big picture of Rita in her, her strip and wear. And at the bottom, it's like, eh, the big combo starring Cornell Wilde. Go see it at the movie theater. <laughs> it was just, just like... <laughs> and you were instructed, like, paste it up in a window. And people will be stopping to read it. And then they'll be like, oh, wow, this is a movie I can go see and not a real story. It's interesting to me primarily because it shows how really because noir was was really drying up at that point in time you have a studio trying to figure out a way to sell this story in a way that you wouldn't have struggled with it before that because the pessimism and the sense of alienation that was underlying noir was a selling point of its own earlier when you have the late 40s in particular, this idea of like, you know, he's a he's a might be a bad man and she might be a bad woman. But, you know, together they're so good. They're on fire kind of a deal. It was like, oh, all right, well, I want to go see that. But that's not so much true in the 50s because then you've got this whole like weird like, you know, Madonna whore, like good girl, bad girl, you know, that whole thing that it starts to lose its appeal. And so it's like they're emphasizing the love triangle in this movie and it's like it's not really a love triangle it's like a love straight line with like cornell wilde standing off at the side like trying (laughs) to draw himself under the other end of the triangle and it's not working very interesting movie very weird movie honestly and the fact that it's not a weird noir noir as i said earlier just shows you how weird noir is that you can see this movie and you'll be like oh okay all right you know instead of being like what the fuck in the same way that you would if this were any other kind of movie. That's why I like what Eddie Muller said about Desert Fury, because he's like, how is this not like a widely screened, like widely discussed, weird movie? Because it's so berserk that the studio system could have produced it. And that's kind of the way I feel about Big Combo. It's like whenever I see people addressing it as kind of like a straightforward noir, I'm like, are you not detecting all of the strange undercurrents here? Or are we just being willfully obtuse? No, it's an incredibly strange movie. And I think in in terms of like people being obtuse, I think that people just don't seek a deeper meaning sometimes or like especially when it comes to things that differ from heteronormativity, yeah. they definitely aren't looking for it um, and are uncomfortable when it's brought up. Going back to the Cary Grant is the straightest man I ever knew. Um, <laughs> it's like they love to deny the existence of any and all people that would stand outside the the spectrum that they're used to seeing portrayed in these movies and it, it's a deep disservice to the creatives that created these movies and to you know people who exist then and exist now who also differ exactly and also like okay the fact that the big combo came out and then immediately like fell into obscurity I'm sure that chap Cornell Wilde's ass, but I thought it was really interesting. I, I found an interview with Lee Van Cleef from the 80s, and the interviewer was like, oh, you know, blah, blah, and Big Combo hasn't undergone a revival. You know, there's a lot of people who are fans of it, and he's like, that's weird. 
And then, like, later in the interview, he was like, still thinking about the fact that apparently people have seen the big combo. Like, <laughs> it just shows you how <laughs> insignificant it was in the life of the people who made this movie that nobody discusses it. It's just not a thing. Even, you know, the very few what's been cobbled together by Cornell Wilde's life is mostly focused on his directorial efforts and then, like, on his um his earlier, like, standard, like, MGM melodrama type Fox. But you know what I mean? His Fox movies, you know. It's interesting to me that it's like, you know, Lever to Heaven is the most discussed Cornell Wilde noir when really it is such an atypical noir. And mm-hmm. um, it would be really cool if people paid more attention to the big combo as how I like to look at it, which is a weird permutation of different elements of the studio system. You have Brian Donlevy, who is, again, from an older generation of movie stars being ritualistically killed off by the young, hopped up, you know, speed freak generation because he's old and he can't hear anymore, I think is very symbolically suggestive and interesting. I think that's a titillating little element there. It's also really interesting how much Don Levy aged between, like, say, The Glass Key in 1943 and this in 1955. He's like an... An old man. I was thinking of like the great McGinty and I was like, he looks like he could be like his own grandfather <laughs> effectively, you know, um, which is fucked up. Aging like a second term president. It's just like, it's so bad. <laughs> he probably like died immediately after this in some sort of horrible fashion. And I'm just a terrible person. I'm going to find out what happened to Brian Donlevy. When did he die? Oh, he died in 72. It's okay. And how bad would he look then? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Um, <laughs> like fucking Skeletor from Oh Hayden. my god, he's only 54 in this movie. 53 if it was shot what in happened? 54. What the fuck? What happened to him? Was it just the war? What happened to him? He's just aging like me. The fact that my hair is already going grey. <laughs> Not even that old. Um, no, I think asking people to pay attention to this movie is asking them to move outside of the like what five noirs they feel comfortable um watching which is what like sunset boulevard um some lauren mccall uh, humphrey bogart features and like what laura people aren't interested in uh tackling noir as a broader genre and it's it's frustrating because there are so many typical noirs and non-typical noirs that um that aren't the postman always rings twice exactly and big combo isn't even that obscure of a movie but it still feels like a deep dive just because it's like people don't want to watch a noir that doesn't have rita hayworth in it and like i love rita hayworth but sometimes ugly people make good movies too <laughs> <laughs> unless unless it's kirk douglas then it's just yes yeah. excuse me i just want to say i'm looking at a picture of brian donlevy and esther fernandez and alan ladd in two years before the mass 1946 and Brian honestly is like hunched over to make Lad look taller. And I <laughs> feel like that's something we have to. I was, oh, I was also, I got distracted rereading one of my favorite books ever, which is John Coble's book of interviews. People will talk. Everybody's in it. Check it out if you haven't read it. So many people and they have so many good stories. And one of them was just like, so I can't even remember who it was at this point. It might have been one of the studio photographers was like, and Alan Ladd was so short. And he'd be walking around in those little lifts and it was just pathetic. And it was like, ugh, gross. Uh, anyway, weird movie. If you're going to see a Joseph Lewis movie, probably watch Gun Crazy first because that's what the kids are all into. And yeah, technically, probably a better movie. Probably some better performances. John Dahl and Peggy Cummins are one of the most batshit crazy pairings in all of film history. Yeah, Wild and it movie. works so well. It works so well. Uh, it's also much less stage-bound than this movie. Um, but this is 
an exciting entry in the film noir genre because it takes, and I'm going to call it a genre because, you know, we discussed that earlier, structure, if you like. I do like the description of, of film noir as a structure. I, I'm going to, I'm going to get into it yes, big time exactly, next week, don't exactly. worry. Um, it takes elements of the pre-noir detective film and then it combines it with kind of this you know waning years of the studio system look forward to a new kind of hollywood morality very interesting synthesis and one thing i would like to mention that i didn't think of until right now is and again i, I think it's paul schrader i'm gonna link all this in the show notes but one of the one of the essays i consulted in doing this episode mentioned how in noirs like big combo there is and we, we talked about this earlier when we're talking about the placidity apart from mingo's emotional outburst but Everything is is very restrained. The action shots are kind of uh, simplified. Things happen to the hero as opposed to the hero doing things. You know, everything is acted upon him and it's the lighting is judicious. There aren't a lot of quick cuts. You know, it's it's very much a low-key affair, which he then compared to, say, a classic gangster movie in the mode of like, you know, Scarface or something or Public Enemy, where everything's very much like a rat-a-tat-tat machine gun thing. There's a lot of quick action, you know, because it's meant to be exciting to the audience, whereas noir is supposed to instill kind of this existential dread. And mm-hmm. this movie fills me with existential dread because if I ever go missing... I don't want Cornell Wilde to investigate it. <laughs> and with my luck, he fucking He's would. He's not a very good detective. Yeah. It would be because he'd like fall in love with like my dog or something. And then that's why he'd be on the case and be like, Cornell. Well, I don't know what else we could possibly say. I think we've covered everything that happens in this movie. Dr. Drew, if you're listening to this, I enjoyed your mother's performance. Please come on the pod. Come <laughs> talk about your mom on the pod, Dr. Drew. Well, yeah, I guess uh, everybody stay Feeling the noir spirit? Yeah, watch a bunch of watch a bunch of shitty movies about terrible people. Uh please rate, review, tell your friends, send us hate mail at basketcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at basketpod. Uh yeah, let us know what you think. Yeah. And yeah, look forward to next week. Uh, and then after that we're going to get full into Christmas because that's all we can do. Yes. What's our first Christmas movie? It may or may not be a heartwarming tale about class warfare (laughs) and criminality. And if Barbara Stanwyck were in charge, the character that she plays in that movie would have been sentenced to a gulag (laughs) for shoplifting. (laughs) (laughs) Because she's a fascist. All right, bye. Bye. (laughs) Happy November. Bye. Hi, welcome to What's in the Basket. I'm Candace. What? I said seamless. I think it's C minus. I was like, damn, okay, all right, we'll keep a running scorecard. He's feeling the burn. Lulu just came by and right next to the mic. Lulu, go lay down somewhere. No? Okay. I think um, it's uh, simplistic of male clips. Critics, boy, can't speak. Not good Mel. news on a podcast. Clitorises, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of po boys, I had the worst intestinal distress of my life one time when <laughs> I was in Chinatown, and I went to I went to a New Orleans style like deli um, that I had seen profiled on the Guy Fieri program. Tires, drive-ins, and. And uh, and um, I almost ralphed like six times. 
But I did have enough time to stop and go into a shop and buy a commemorative Chinatown spoon for Rita's dad, which I still have not sent her (laughs) to give to him. (laughs) I I hate to sound like a gatekeeper, but I'm going to be a gatekeeper here. You know, you must be this tall to ride this ride. Gatekeeper spelled (laughs) G-A-Y. Yes, I am. I am the gatekeeper. That's me. Get get back into it. Get your head in the game, man. And then you put a clip right here of um, Zac Efron in in the high no, school musical. No, don't because get your head. I in don't the game. want to be sued by Disney. Disney's already going to sue us for everything else. We've already trashed out Disney so many times. Someone's got to. Everyone's too fucking excited about Disney Plus. I'm. Someone's got to be the voice of reason. I know, and it's. I'm afraid it's us. Sadly. Yeah, when we're the voice of reason, that's not a ringing endorsement. That's a very bad sign. Of the state of, <laughs> state of affairs. State of affairs is bleak. That's, that's a bleak environment. If we're representative of some sort of a conscience, you know, after I talked at length about how I wouldn't buy a baby <laughs> if it was Ansel <laughs> Elgort and just let it die. <laughs> oh, Good thing God. Ansel Elgort... <laughs> was not a baby somewhere in the sugarcane fields of louisiana in 1928 and also a good thing that i wasn't also there with the disposable income <laughs> to purchase a baby seven bucks on a baby jesus i could probably buy you like a late model model t at that point you know like a 1926 model t outfitted with the newest innovation the horn probably costs like <laughs> seven bucks <laughs> And to think that oh, Earl Holloman's mother spent that money on a child. She could have bought herself a jalopy. Really makes you think. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> Jeez. Oh, no.